0: good morning church happy fourth to you Uh, i've been looking forward to this series on marriage uh part of the reason i'm looking forward to it is next week katie and i are going to be celebrating our 16th wedding anniversary can you believe it yeah she has put up with me for that long quite contrary to expectation um it has been blessed though to be married together And this is actually my seventh year as senior pastor of this church. I just started my seventh year back in April, and in seven years, I have yet to preach a series on marriage. Now, you might be like, Rob, why haven't you preached a series on marriage? Well, it's because Bob and Judy Kinsey is in this church, and they know that I'm just finishing the honeymoon of marriage, right? They've been married for like, I'm not even going to say the number, but for quite some time. So when you say to yourself, you know, I don't feel like I have all the practical wisdom, sometimes you decide that you're going to get yourself a a Sherpa or a guide to help you, right? So I've decided to do that. The title of this series actually piggybacks off of a book that really blessed me recently, the title, I Still Do. It's by author Dave Harvey. So he's going to give me some assistance in terms of some of the content and the practical wisdom in this series. Uh, But of course, more importantly, the Word of God will be driving us through this. Now, I am interested in marriage for two reasons. The first reason is because what marriage is, right? Uh, John Calvin said this of marriage. He said, Marriage is not a thing ordained by men. You got that? We didn't make it. We didn't create it. My marriage is not really even about me. It's ultimately about God. Calvin said, we know that God is the author of it and that it is solemnized in his name. The scripture says that it is a holy covenant and therefore calls it divine. Now, secondly, I am interested in mature marriage growing marriage. There's plenty of marriage that takes place in this culture, but not all marriage is the ideal form of marriage. A lot of marriage can be destructive and hurtful. So we want to ask the question, well, how do we do this in a mature way? How do we grow a marriage? Well, Harvey looks at it this way. He says that marriages go through moments. So he asks this question, what defining Moments do marriages experience. Now, think of a moment as unique points in your marriage. There are points of trouble. There are points of transformation. And these visit marriage along the way, and mature marriages, well, they go through these milestones because there's a lot of stuff that happens right in life when you get married like you have jobs and you have financial situations that arise and sometimes you feel like you're two inches underwater when you're in the kid phase of life then those kids become teenagers and then those teenagers they become adults and they leave the house and then you go through empty nester phase there's also the trouble that marriages sometimes go through suffering. Not just suffering because there's conflict in the marriage, but suffering because a spouse suffers and another spouse walks through that suffering with them. And then finally, it culminates to the final goodbye because we know that this life is transitory. It's not forever. But here's what I've come to find out about these moments. I believe God's in the moments. He's working in the moments. He uses the moments to grow you to grow your spouse to grow your marriage so we're going to be looking at four moments together in this series the first is today the moment of blame and then the second one is when you realize family can't replace church the third moment is the moment you get mercy and then number four when you learn closure is overrated now, you're thinking to yourself this morning, maybe, uh, I don't know if this series applies to me. I'm not married, Rob. I'm divorced. I'm single. I'm, uh, right now, I'm engaged. Well, it really applies if you're engaged. Be listening closely. Here's the thing. We are going to be unpacking theological truths through this series Theological truths are always transferable. Yes, I will be applying some of this to marriage, but this applies to all of us because all of these things are true no matter our marriage status. So we're going to start off with this idea of blame, the moment of blame. A few years ago, some museum employees were working on the 3,300-year-old mask of King Tut. Now, this is one of the world's most priceless artifacts. It's one of the best-known artifacts of Egyptian antiquity, and that's when the accident happened. What happened is King Tut's beard somehow broke off the mask. Now, you don't know exactly how this happened. Something went wrong. Someone was either working with the mask and accidentally dropped it, or maybe they were just getting a little... uh, you know uncouth uh, playing frisbee at a break time who knows what happened but the one thing we do know that happened following the break of the mask is that some genius decides to fix the problem so they go and they get a tube of gorilla glue (laughs) and they make the problem even worse they slap the gorilla glue on the mask then they take a spatula and they try to scrape clean the Gorilla Glue, further damaging the mask. Now, I know we're all thinking, wow, that sounds just like me in fourth grade when I broke mom's lamp. (laughs) It's like almost junior high-ish, right? But if you're really being honest with yourself this morning, you're thinking, that actually sounds a lot like human nature. Because I can think of moments in my life I broke King Tut's beard and I grabbed the gorilla glue. It turns out that a lot of marriage mishaps come from this tendency. There's a tendency within ourselves where we have trouble accepting the blame, accepting the blame that we are wrong. Go all the way to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Let's just kind of review. The ideas in this chapter a little bit this morning. You get into this chapter, and the chapter is more than just a chapter about how sin entered into the world and how human brokenness resulted from sin entering into the world. In this chapter, we also learn about how sin operates within the human heart, how it interfaces within us. Satan begins, and he tempts Adam and Eve, and he says, did God really say? And with that question, he sows a seed of doubt. And Adam and Eve, they buy it hook, line, and sinker. Eve is the first to succumb to the temptation. She eats the fruit. Adam's standing idly by, but as soon as she offers the fruit, Adam goes right along with her, and instead of coming to God in Genesis chapter 3 and saying, God, we, we knew that you had this rule. We knew that we were supposed to stay away from the fruit. We were tempted. We were deceived. We ate. What do they do? They grab the gorilla glue, and they start blaming one another. Now, Adam, he really throws Eve under the bus. Look at Genesis 3.12. He says, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree. This is how sin operates. Sin produces guilt. Guilt produces shame. Shame makes us want to hide. And in their hiding, their hiding isn't just sowing fig leaves around themselves and, and running away from God and trying not to be observed. No, their hiding actually manifests itself in the tendency to deflect blame, reject personal responsibility, and ascribe our sinful decision to others. C.S. Lewis said this, those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. You know what's worse? Not only do we do that, but we become the victims of the story. Adam says it's God's fault. You know, God, I'm just here in the garden. I'm just walking around, and she comes at me with this fruit. She stuffs the fruit in my mouth. She forces my jaws to move up and down. She punches me in the stomach so that I had to swallow. Do you see what I'm working with here, God? I mean, you put her here, and I'm just dealing with this stuff. Well, we're all a little bit like Adam, aren't we? Maybe a lot bit like Adam. You see, our sinful inner monologue justifies us. Not me. No, 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 not me. I'm just a bundle of goodness walking around. I'm just so loving and so kind. You know, this is happening to me, not because of me. you hear that? To me. J.D. Vance, he wrote the book Hillbilly Elegy. He was working in a warehouse when he was younger alongside of a guy named Bob. Now, Vance was observing this guy, Bob, in the work situation. Bob was a 19-year-old guy. Bob also had a pregnant girlfriend. You would think that Bob, in a situation like that, would be a good worker, that he would apply himself to work, that he would be self-motivated because of that dynamic. But it turns out that Bob was a terrible worker. I mean, Bob would miss work at least once a week, And when Bob decided to show up to work, Bob was always late for work. So here he is, week after week, doing the same thing over and over again, and you know the end of the story. Bob got fired. And Bob is living in an area where jobs like this aren't easy to come by, good benefits like this not easy to come by. So Vance says he was shocked with how Bob left the work environment You see, Bob blamed the manager. He said, how could you do this to me? Don't you know my girlfriend is pregnant? And then Vance goes on to say this. When it was all over, he thought something had been done to him. There's a lack of agency, a feeling that you have little control over your life and willingness to blame everyone but yourself. Now, we shake our heads at Bob, but listen, the reason that marriage grows toxic is for the same type of thinking that Bob employed at work. We carry that same rationale. I've been in marriage counseling. I've been involved in marriage dynamics for quite some time now as a pastor, and I'm telling you, every time I sit down and a marriage is really struggling Here are the reoccurring themes that I observe. Number one, the spouse is able to remember the offenses against them with historian-like precision. I mean, they know the date of events, the time of events. They know the general weather patterns that were taking place on that day and even remember the color of the spouse's socks. But then when the tables turned and they say, well, you did this to me, the spouse says, well, I did that because you did this. It's almost like they are a moral tumbleweed just being blown about. Forces acting upon them, and I had to because this. I got to be truthful with you. I can do the same thing with the best of them when my sin gets the best of me. I'm very quick to point the finger. How about you? When's the last time you acknowledged, like really acknowledged, that you did something wrong? Or you're telling the story about something bad happening to you, have you ever noticed that we tend not to be the antagonist in those stories? We're just walking about and things are happening to us we're moral tumbleweeds. There's no agency there. There's no taking responsibility, and we just grab the gorilla glue. Now, we really have to get down to the root of this. Why do we do this? I want to suggest that struggling marriages don't just happen to us. Just like healthy marriages aren't just meant to be, we're told that healthy marriages are a result of the stars aligning perfectly. And you have this couple where this person's the north end of the magnet, that person's the south end of the magnet, and they just happen to find each other in this world. Well, the rest of us, well, we're just struggling for fit and fate, right? But that's not true. That's a cultural myth. The Bible says that biblical marriage Or healthy marriage is a result of biblical faithfulness and biblical honesty. And we have to start with the place of biblical honesty. And here's an honest statement. I am a sinner. And the root cause of my sin problem is pride. Now you know what pride is. I don't have to define pride for you. You know pride when you see it, even though you don't tend to see it in yourself. Now the Bible says this that God hates pride. He hates it. Think about what you really hate, and I mean really hate. Now, we can talk to things that are lesser that we hate, like some of you just hate pickles and tomatoes and sauerkraut. I happen to hate cleaning. You can just ask Katie after the service. But there are... Only amen, she gives me all sermon, you know? (laughs) What is this? There's uh, deeper things we hate too, isn't there? Like I hate cancer. I hate racism. I want to be honest with you. I hate abortion. I hate anything that devalues or destroys life from womb all the way to tomb. That's not politics. That's A Christian worldview, guys. But no matter how much I hate those things, nothing compares to God's hatred of pride. He hates pride. Listen to what He says in the Proverbs about pride. He says, "This pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate." I look at Proverbs sixteen five. Everyone who is arrogant in heart, in his abomination to the Lord, be assured he will not go unpunished. The scriptures actually say that if you want to draw out God's active opposition in your life, like God to be against your agenda and against the things that you are about, just devote your life to pride. In James 4, 6, in 1 Peter 5, 5, scripture says, God opposes the proud. Why? Why does God stand in such opposition to pride? Well, the first reason is that pride is ultimately self-glorification, meaning it robs God of his glory. So, if I'm proud, I'm trying to be the little case G God of my own world. And C.J. Mahaney says this, that's the motive and the ultimate purpose of pride, that the proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God. But here's a second reason. The second reason is because pride is personally destructive. Look at what Proverbs 16:18 says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So if God's the creator of life, if God's the author of life, if you will, wouldn't you think that God likes life? In fact, wouldn't you go a step further and say God loves life? And if if God loves life, that means he loves your life, which means then that God has your best interests in mind. He wants what is ultimately good for you. Well, God knows that your pride, my pride, all of our pride, destroys It destroys your life, it destroys relationships, it destroys marriages, it destroys our relationships with our kids, our relationships with our parents, our friendships. It destroys even relationships amongst church members. So if that's true, well then we've got to get ruthless about pride. Now Jonathan Edwards, he was the great revivalist. um, He said this of his pride. He said, what a foolish silly, miserable, blind, deceived poor worm am I when pride works. I mean, that's a ruthless statement about pride. And he was ruthless with pride because Edwards says that the reason the great awakening ended prematurely, one of the big reasons for that was spiritual pride. We've got to be ruthless with this thing, but we tend not to be. Because pride in church settings tends to be a respectable sin. We walk into church and, you know, we stay away from those big sins like immorality and that kind of stuff. But you can just be as proud as you want and as gossipy as you want in the church because that's more respectable. That's clean Christianity. But here we're seeing that's not. God hates it, it's destructive. So now you're asking me, well, Rob, uh, you're talking about this pride thing. You're saying we've got to be ruthless about it. So, how do I get ruthless with pride in my world? You are so smart. That is a great question to be asking right now. And I got to tell you this whenever I'm asking myself these big questions, after looking at scripture and seeking the Lord, I then look to Katie for the answers. Because if you haven't figured it out, she's pretty smart. Now, the Wheelers, we have a poison ivy problem at our home. Anybody else have a poison ivy problem? I know some of you are going to come after church and be like, you need goats in your world. I don't want goats in my world. (laughs) I specifically have my house to stay away from goats in my world. So, here we have this problem, and you know, I'm attacking the poison ivy, and I'm going out, and I'm just, like, cutting it, and I'm spraying it with stuff. Well, guess what poison ivy does? It's indomitable. It just keeps coming back. So Katie finally one day just determines that she's going to put on, like, a full-on outfit, covering herself from head to toe. She's duct-taping her arms. She goes out there because I probably said something I shouldn't have and goes to town on the poison ivy. She's just letting out aggression. She's feeling... <laughs> bags full of poison ivy. And I'll tell you what, it worked. (laughs) It didn't come back. Pride is like poison ivy in your world. Okay, listen, you can't just like kind of cut it back a little bit by saying semi-humble things from time to time, You can't even, like, spray it out of your life. It will return, and it will return with a vengeance. So how do I become ruthless with it? Well, the Bible says you do that by adopting the attitude of humility. Now, here's the thing with humility. We don't understand humility at all, okay? We don't. It doesn't come naturally to us. Humility, I want to suggest, is an otherworldly attitude. Because when we think of humility we think of it like, oh, you know, if I'm going to be a humble person, well, I've just got to be down on myself. I've got to, like, notice all of the inferior qualities about myself and fixate upon those things and kind of walk around with a dour spirit all the time and look to my right and my left and compare myself over and against the person next to me and their superior qualities to mine. But that is not humility. That is actually just another form of pride because you are preoccupied with yourself. Humility is so different. Humility is called the art of self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking too highly of yourself. It's not thinking too lowly of yourself. It's thinking rightly about yourself, even not thinking about yourself that often. You see, you learn about humility by assessing yourself in light of god that's where humility comes from and as i assess myself in light of god what are three things that i can learn about myself well the first thing i can learn is that everything i have comes from god everything james says in james chapter one he says Do not be deceived. Now, what is he saying we're deceived about? Well, I want to suggest, here's a big deception we buy into. We believe that our smarts and our good looks and our competencies and the opportunities that come in our direction, well, we did that. I made that happen. James says, if you think like that, you are deceived. You didn't choose where you would be born or the parents that you would be born into or the location of where you would be born or the people that would cross your path through your life so every good gift he says every perfect gift comes from above comes from god second i am no better than anyone else that is at the heart of the second greatest commandment love your neighbor as yourself do you know this that any time that I am judging another person, that I am saying that their sin is worse than my sin or comparing myself to them or gossiping about them, that I am actually devaluing the image of God in that person. Because what is valuable about me and them is the same thing. It's the fact that we reflect the glory of God through the image of God. Thirdly, I am what I am by grace. You see, everything that I am, everything I have, comes to me from grace. Even if I haven't trusted Jesus as my Savior, every day of my life is a result of the general grace of God. He makes His sunshine and rain pour down on the righteous and the unrighteous. But then that special grace of God becoming like Christ and growing to be like Christ, that comes through faith. And as I get that grace, I become everything that God intended me to be in this world. So it's all a result of his grace. So let's come now back to this moment of blame and let's get honest with ourselves. I'm suggesting this morning that marriages struggle because we don't take responsibility. We grab the gorilla glue. So if we want our marriage to flourish, it begins by looking in the mirror and saying this, I am the problem in my marriage. You want to say that with me this morning? (laughs) Let's do it. I am the problem in my marriage. Not her, not him, me. Now, no one came into church this morning expecting that they were going to be saying that out loud. We were thinking we were going to get this marriage of helpful techniques and helpful advice, but I got to tell you, if you don't root out the poison ivy, all of that stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't go anywhere. You've got to root out the poison ivy, and the only way to do that is to grow in the biblical attitude of wisdom, uh, of humility, and humility is taking personal responsibility. So now let's start assessing ourselves. I want to ask us four perceptive questions, four questions, penetrating questions, to see how we are doing in the space of humility in our marriages. And I want to suggest that these questions are hard. They're challenging. So here's question number one. How did I respond the last time my spouse criticized or corrected me? How'd you do? Well, I didn't do so well. (laughs) I responded with anger and self-justification. And that's not wise. Scripture says this in Proverbs 9, 8, Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Proverbs twelve fifteen. a wise man listens to advice. Now, in the Bible, one of the most foolish things you can do is be wise in your own eyes. And that is a virtue in our culture. No one can tell me what to do. I know what's best for me. I don't need anyone's input in my life. And the Bible says if you live like that, you are a fool. The last one, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. So how do we stop being stupid and start being smart in our marriages? I think that's an important question. And I've got to tell you, I think it begins with the reality that our spouses need to be talking to us. Why is it that we tend to be most defensive with our spouse? Why? because you can't hide from them. You can't. They know you at your best. They know you at your worst. You try to grab the gorilla glue, and they're like, "Uh uh-uh. I know you broke the mask. So, if I'm going to stop being stupid, I've got to stop being defensive and start developing an attitude, a spirit of humility, and listen to them. But here's the thing, the other side of the coin, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. You never say something to your spouse to tear them down. It's always to build them up. Second question, how do I respond when my spouse sins against me? So at some point, even though my wife tends to make me question my theology that everyone's a sinner, I am the blunt end of her sin, too. And so are you in your marriage or in your relationships. Now, how I relate to being sinned against or when I think I've been sinned against reveals my true grasp of God's grace. Do you know that we have this tendency as people that when our spouse sins against us, we become little enforcers? Like, we want all the mercy and grace in the world when we're asking forgiveness, but when it comes our turn to extend it, she did this to me. He, he has earned what he's getting right now. I'm an enforcer. I'm just delving it out, right? I, I'm not forgetting what they did. But that's not true to the Bible, is it? Because scripture says, what? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's God's job description, right? To be the enforcer. My job description is actually to be like Jesus and be forgiving and merciful. I love what James says in James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Third question, how do I acknowledge my own mistakes? Let me ask you just directly, are you like me when you become angry over something? Do you tend to shy away from biblical words, like using words that are morally weighted like angry and I was bitter and you shy away from those kind of words and you say, you know, I admit I was a little touchy today. A little frustrated. You know, When we do that, Harvey notes that we are creating a soft, amoral world. So people, from the outside looking in, as they hear you talking about your sin, they might draw the conclusion that you don't need a savior. Because you're all set. You're not a sinner, you're just someone who struggles from time to time. And that is not going to reap gospel benefits in my life. Jerry Bridges says this, to benefit from the gospel every day, we must acknowledge that we are still sinners. And then when I do that, I can move then into this fourth question, and that is, am I growing more and more in the grace of God? You know, this is the heart of all human need. It's, it's God's grace. I love reading how Paul spoke to believers in the epistles As you read Paul's writings, he constantly preaches the gospel to them. He constantly says, this is the Jesus that we worship. This is what this Jesus did on the cross for you. He shed his blood for you. He reconciled you. He justified you. You are now being sanctified. Now, what is so incredible about what Paul is doing here? Paul is preaching the gospel to people who are already saved, We tend to think of the gospel as the entry point to the Christian faith. We think of it as the ABCs of Christianity, and then you kind of just move in, and you start fighting and wrestling to become more like Jesus on your own, because now you're a good person, which is not true. You're still operating in the flesh, unless the Spirit of God is working in you in powerful ways. So it's not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. I need it from start to finish. And once I acknowledge that, yes, I am a sinner day after day, then I can appropriate grace and I can say, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. Grace. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in me, and when I do that, I invite him to work. Listen, church, we don't need more helpful techniques, ultimately. Helpful techniques are good, and they're helpful, and they can help you to be biblically wise, but if you don't root out the poison ivy, if you don't start there, oh boy, We sure make a lot of messes, don't we? I want to close our time in prayer. Let me ask you to bow your head with me. And in this prayer that I'm going to read to you, this is a prayer from Richard Foster. He titles it a simple prayer. He acknowledges in this prayer that we are walking contradictions, at least this side of eternity. You see, we know Jesus, yet we still struggle. We have the Holy Spirit of God, yet the flesh still operates within us. So let these words minister to you. I am, O God, a jumbled mass of motives. One moment I am adoring you, and the next I am shaking my fist at you. I vacillate between mounting hope and deepening despair. I am full of faith and full of doubt. I want the best for others and am jealous when they get it. Even so, God, I will not run from your presence, nor will I pretend to be what I am not. Thank you for accepting me with all of my contradictions. Amen.